name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. We're at the start of a new year, and it looks set to be an extremely busy one. In this episode, we're going to take a look at a topic that's fast rising up the agenda in financial markets, sustainable finance. All around the world, policymakers have set ambitious targets to support the transition to a green, carbon-neutral economy. In Europe, around €225 billion in green bonds are set to be issued as part of the Coronavirus Recovery Fund. In the US, the Biden administration is about to take office with a strong commitment to addressing climate change. Clearly, this is going to be a major theme in financial markets in 2021 and beyond. The question is, what impact will this have on the financial services industry? And how do derivatives fit into all of this? To discuss these issues, I am joined once again by Scott O'Malia, ISDA's Chief Executive. So Scott, how is ISDA approaching this topic and what role do you think at a high level can derivatives play? Thanks, Nick. We've been working with our membership, laying the groundwork for this for some time and have been in active dialogue with policymakers around the world as they develop standards and targets. As ESG becomes increasingly important for market participants, we expect this to be a major policy issue for ISDA in the months and years ahead. Derivative markets can play a vital role in this transition in several ways. The first is they will be a means by which issuers and investors can hedge their risk arising from ESG exposure. Second, they can facilitate price discovery and price transparency. And finally, derivatives allow firms to mitigate the impact of short-term market fluctuations and enable them to stay focused on their strategic goals. Well, if there was someone who could help discuss this in a little bit more detail and demystify some of these issues, it's our guest today, Bob Litterman. After a 23-year career at Goldman Sachs, Bob is now chairman of the Risk Committee and founding partner at Kepos Capital. He chairs the CFTC's Climate-Related Market Risk Subcommittee and led the development of a major report in September on managing climate risk in the US financial system. Scott, shall we bring Bob on? That'd be great. Bob, welcome to The Swap. It's great to have you with us today. ESG and sustainable finance is high on the agenda in financial markets around the world. With ambitious targets for green bond issuance in some jurisdictions, including the EU, with the Biden administration about to take office, how do you expect this to evolve in the U.S. and beyond in 2021? Well, as we talk about ESG, let's focus first on the climate dimension, because right now, climate risk is really exploding. And I expect that that reality is going to push many governments, including the U.S., that have not yet created appropriate incentives to reduce emissions to do so in the near future. I believe that in 2021, we will see a really strong push on climate action. And I'm hoping and expecting that that's going to lead to bipartisan action in the U.S. Congress. Now, I'm much more optimistic, I think, than most investors right now. But I'm confident we'll see this action because climate change really is an existential threat to the planet. The risk management is real and it requires immediate action. And I think we have a new administration that's coming in that's going to respect that reality. Now, the greenhouse gases from the last 50 years have pushed global average temperatures up by one degree centigrade already. And because of the time it will take and the long lags in the Earth's response, the maximum warming is already heading toward a level between one and a half and two degrees. And that will occur that maximum temperature probably around 2070. 
Now, where that maximum temperature peak matters a lot, most of our listeners are probably aware that, for example, the ocean's coral reefs are already being devastated by the warming of the oceans. You know, that ocean warming is not something that we can change overnight. The IPCC estimates that a peak temperature of around one and a half degrees will cause the planet to lose between 70 and 90 percent of coral reefs. But at two degrees C, it would lose over 99 percent of those coral reefs. So a 10-year delay in global warming of emissions could easily push us over that two-degree warming, leading to complete devastation of coral reefs. And that's just one dimension of the problem. But I think it's, it's an illustrative one that indicates how quickly this risk is rising. You know, we don't know when we're going to pass a tipping point that just leads to a nonlinear response and devastating impacts on the planet and on ecosystems around the world and on the well-being of future generations. Now, I, I think Biden has already made a number of really strong appointments, and I'm optimistic that we're going to see strong action on climate this year. And then I think that will be the first really important environmental issue, but there are other environmental issues that will be addressed, such as biodiversity and you know, clean water and all of the benefits that we get from nature. And then, you know, ESG is, you know, then you talk about the social and the governance issues. We're going to look, I think, very closely at the sustainable development goals that the UN has. And, and this approach towards sustainability, I think, is going to be a key driver of investment themes for, for decades to come. Now, you led the development of a major report from the CFTC's Market Risk Advisory Committee entitled Managing Climate Risk for the U.S. Financial System. The report found the U.S. and other countries will have to continue to cope with some measure of climate change-related impact, even under optimistic scenarios for emissions reductions. What impacts might those be? There's many impacts that we know about, and then I'm sure there's going to be many impacts that we haven't thought about. But the important ones that we're aware of are driven by the rising temperatures, the global average temperature, which is heating up the oceans, and the oceans are rising because of the melting ice in Antarctica and in uh, Greenland in particular, but also the warming of the ocean expands water itself. And so ultimately, uh, you know, it's going to be substantial sea level rise. We don't really know how much, but that's going to be a major problem for low-lying areas such as uh, the Florida coast, where we have tens of millions of people. And then we've got more generally the warming of the temperature, and especially when it gets uh, extreme. So we saw this year the highest recorded temperature in history, 130 degrees in uh, Death Valley. And there's many places around the world that are become less and less inhabitable because of the heat. Then you've got the storms. You've got hurricanes and cyclones around the world. This year we had 30. It was a record number. And they're getting more powerful and they're behaving differently, stopping places that never used to happen, causing complete destruction. You had two hurricanes back-to-back -back hit uh, Honduras and Nicaragua uh, this year. I think they were estimated to do 20% damage to the economy. Then you've got uh, wildfires here in California that are growing every year. And, and the smoke is causing tremendous impacts on health, negative impacts. 
so these are just some of the uh, impacts. We, we could go on in terms of health impacts and potential diseases, in terms of the inability of people to farm and use agriculture the way they have historically, causing migrations and problems with immigration and national security. There's all kinds of dimensions to this that really may lead to interactions and complications that we haven't even thought about. So we're just getting started. We've had one degree of warming so far, and we're headed to, uh, as I said, one and a half to two degrees of warming over the next 50 years. Now, I thought in that report, one of the most important and urgent recommendations is to put a price on carbon and maybe speak to who was around the table that spoke about putting a price on carbon and why that's so significant. Yeah, no, you raise a very good point, which is who was around the table. So, and I give the uh, CFTC and Commissioner Russ Benham, who uh, started this initiative to write the report, a tremendous credit for it creating a diverse group of experts, ranging from you know academics. We had many academics, climate scientists, uh, and others, and folks from the environmental community, the uh, EDF, uh, WRI the uh, Nature Conservancy. And then we had corporations, banks, insurance companies. We had a, uh, an exchange, the CME. We had a couple of uh, oil and gas companies, BP and ConocoPhillips. We had a number of agricultural organizations, uh, Bungie and Cargill, the uh, Dairy Farmers Association, Grow Intelligence, we had uh, investors, CalPERS was big pension fund, Ceres, a group of asset owners, Wellington, asset management. And, you know, we all agreed, as you, you, you mentioned, sitting around the table. At the first meeting we had back in November, we were sitting around the table introducing ourselves to each other. And I remember, uh, you know, talking about risk management. This was a risk committee and, and, and being framed as a risk committee is important. I've sat on many risk committees, and they tend to be very focused, very uh, thoughtful. And when you're managing risk, you know that you've got to think about the full distribution of outcomes. One mistake many people make is that they think about, well, what we expect to occur. Risk management is not about what we expect to occur. Risk management is about what are some of the really bad but plausible scenarios that might play out. And we've got to think about those. And when we, when we talked about risk management, I remember very clearly saying, you know, not pricing this risk is the fundamental mistake that we're making. That's the cause of climate change. And we've got to create appropriate incentives to reduce emissions. Does anyone disagree with that? And we ran around the table and no one disagreed with that. You know, the folks from the oil and gas companies, they agreed. The banks agreed, the insurance companies agreed, all the academics agreed, everyone agreed. You know, and then we talked about other things that we all agreed on. I was a little surprised when one of the members of the subcommittee said, you know, I think uh, disclosure of climate-related risks ought to be mandatory. Does anyone disagree with that? No one disagreed. In fact, what we sort of recognized as we dug into it a little bit is that the issue is not mandatory versus voluntary. The issue is what are material climate-related risks? And that's 
that hasn't really been defined. So a lot of corporations are not reporting because they don't know whether their climate-related risk is material or not. And, and what we decided as a subcommittee, and again, it was a unanimous recommendation, is we recognize that material risks have to be reported. The question is, we need guidance from the regulators on how do we determine what's a material climate-related risk. Climate-related risks are very different than the typical financial market risk, which tends to be relatively short-term. We tend to think about what might happen over the next few months, and do we have enough capital, or do these institutions that might be our counterparties have enough capital for the worst-case scenario? And then we have you know, decades of experience that we can look at to try and understand what might happen, typically over a relatively short period of time. Or if you're an asset owner, you might think about a three-month horizon. What might happen? Could it be a 50% decline in equities? And the answer is yes. We know what the distribution of outcomes over a short period of time might look like. With climate risk, the, the risks go out for decades. And we've never experienced it before. We can't look back over history and say, what are the correlations going to be? What does the tail look like? What are, because we've never experienced this. It's an emerging risk. It's one that we can see coming, but we don't have a lot of experience. I assume that people are okay with the price on carbon, but what that price is, did the committee discuss that? Or is it, did it, people have a, a range that they thought was okay? You make a good point, which is that we did not focus on, you know, pricing carbon and what the price should be or how that should be done. I mean, we said, look, it hasn't been done because of political frictions. We recognize that. And it has to be done by Congress. We recognize that. This is not something that the financial regulators or, you know, the central bank or the uh, asset owners or the investment managers can do on their own. Corporations can't do it on their own. I mean, corporations can create a shadow price, and many of them have. And, you know, that's fine as far as it goes. But, you know, let's be honest with each other. Shadow profits don't pay people their salaries and people don't work for shadow, you know, shadow salaries or shadow profits that people respond to the incentives they're given. Now, there are many different types of incentives. So whether it's a cap and trade system or a tax system or uh, other types of incentives, that's really up to Congress. And and that's what we said in the report. This is not something we're going to focus on here, but everyone in the financial system recognizes and understands that this is the fundamental problem. You don't give people incentives to reduce emissions, they're not going to reduce emissions. They're going to treat the atmosphere as if it's, you know, a, a free disposal for carbon dioxide. That's the incentives they're given. That's how they're going to behave. In many countries, there's actually incentives that the, the, the fossil fuels are subsidized. So people are being paid to pollute. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. It's the fundamental problem. It's an urgent problem. It's the most important problem. We all see that. And, you know, I think because folks in the financial system understand how important these incentives are. I, I spent, you know, decades as a financial engineer. And so I understand what financial engineering is all about. And it's about being very precise in terms of the investments you're making. What are the risks you want to take? What are the risks you don't want to take? And what that means is that capital will flow very precisely in the direction that the incentives give where you can make profits. 
and capital won't flow where those incentives don't direct it. And so that's why all the participants unanimously in the, in the financial markets agree, we've got to price carbon. We've got to create appropriate incentives to reduce emissions, and we've got to do it immediately. And it's got to be done by Congress. So, you know, everyone sees that. I'm, I'm also the co-chairman of the board of the Climate Leadership Council, which, as you probably know, is the leading sponsor of the Baker Schultz Carbon Dividend Plan. And, and that is something that, you know, has support from basically the entire corporate universe uh, and, and all the economists and, you know, former chairman of the Federal Reserve and the National Economic uh, Council, the Council of Economic Advisors. Everyone agrees. It's unanimous. Everyone who's thought about this understands we've got to price the risk and we've got to do it soon because the risk is exploding. Well, let's talk about the current Fed chairman, Jer- uh, Jerome Powell. And he too has taken steps to join the uh, Network for Greening the Financial System, a group of 75 central banks focused on sustainable finance. Meanwhile, Fed Governor Lael Brainerd has said how important it is that the quantitative impacts of financial-related risk are properly assessed and addressed, which was your point earlier. So what are the next steps prudential regulators should take in setting policies to ensure that climate is appropriately identified and managed on the bank balance sheet? Yeah, well, bank regulators have an important role to play here. And yeah, we we have 53 recommendations in the report, and most of them are focused on the roles that regulators should play. One of them is just to get up to speed on, you know, what climate change is, to understand the science of it, and to understand what the impacts are likely to be. Most of those impacts, by the way, are insurable. Most of those impacts are local. So, you know, when you have a storm, a hurricane, or a flood, or a heat wave, or wildfires, these are things that create damages that can be insured. And so we we should, one of the things that regulators should make sure is that we have adequate insurance. We have the appropriate incentives for insurance companies to write policies. Now, what climate change does is it raises the cost of those policies and we we shouldn't subsidize it. It's when you subsidize things like flood insurance that people build too much in in those flood zones. So we want to make sure that people have the right incentives, that they do have the insurance that's available and, and that they make the choices given the risks that they do face from climate change. But Beyond that, we also have to make sure that the financial institutions have the capital and and the wherewithal and the systems in place to monitor the climate-related risks that they face. And then there are additional risks that we as a society face from climate change. So we make a distinction in the report between subsystemic risks and systemic risks. And the financial regulators also have to worry about those systemic risks. So it's beyond just the risks that the individual institutions have and regulators and and society more generally, Congress and the president, have to worry about the systemic risks that climate change is going to create down the road. If we don't address it today, then the maximum temperature 20 or 30 years down the road is just going to be that much higher and that much more difficult to address. So what's really key is for regulators to see that trade-off between actions today and damages in the future and make the appropriate trade-off, which is to say, in effect, buy insurance for society as a whole. And the only way you can do that 
The only way you can buy systemic risk insurance is by pricing carbon today. That's the insurance that we as a society need to buy to protect ourselves and future generations. And you mentioned developing the data in order to both spot the problem and target the solutions. Having worked at the CFTC as a, as a commissioner, developing this data, pulling this new information together is, is quite a challenge. You want a good, robust data and complete data, of course, and that's going to take some time. The recommendations in the CFTC report clearly spot this issue as, in the, to develop the appropriate climate scenarios. It recommends that the federal government undertake a really substantial research program. This is ambitious, and our prudential and market regulators up to the challenges And then maybe how do firms add into this to support this initiative to get to the data so you can get to the solution? Are the regulators up to the challenge? I would say absolutely yes. There are a tremendous number of really good uh, researchers in in the Federal Reserve System. You know, I I was once an economist in the Fed myself decades ago. There's a lot of expertise, and they've been doing a lot of research, actually. This is not brand new to the Fed. But we all recognize that we're at an early stage. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about that. We don't have good data on this. Frankly, we, we haven't seen it happen yet. Again, it's, it's an emerging risk that's going to you know, occur in the decades ahead. So when we talk about the data, we don't even know what the right data is. Now, there are a lot of folks working on this. And so we kind of know where we're going. And that is to say that starting with individuals who, you know, may own a home that might be in a flood zone or on a barrier island and and may not be able to get a 30-year mortgage on that house. Well, that's going to be difficult to sell. So there's going to be impacts on the valuation of individual assets. And then you have corporations. And again, there's going to be local climate-related factors, whether it's heat or floods or, you know, hurricanes or wildfires. Each corporation with, and and it may be an international corporation, it may have issues with supply chains, it may have assets all over the world. You know, it's so each company, and they're in different businesses. So what are the climate-related risks that are going to impact an insurance company? That's going to be different than those that are going to impact an oil and gas company. And those are different than an airline or a law firm or whatever. You know, each each business is going to have its own climate-related risk factors that it's going to have to think about, report on, and so on. And then when you get to the financial system and you have companies like banks that are making loans throughout the uh, economy, they have to think more broadly about what are the climate-related risks and how do you aggregate the individual risks of the loans that they've made into a portfolio of loans and how do you report on that? And, you know, asset owners and investors are going to be looking at these, trying to understand what are the climate-related risks in their portfolios and, and so on. And so there's a lot of unanswered questions. I would say financial regulators around the world, in particular, uh, the Network for Greening the Financial System, the NGFS, which is a group of central banks that have been focused on this, and others have been developing scenario analysis and thinking about how to do stress tests in the insurance sector and in the banking sector. So there's a lot of work that's been done. There are a lot of folks in the uh, financial regulatory system that are looking at this and analyzing it and doing research, but it's an early stage. And what's interesting is you have, again, a unanimous message from 
all of the members of the, uh, I would say, stakeholders in the financial system saying to the regulators, we've got to work together. We need a partnership to, and, and we need leadership from you folks to tell us how we're going to report on material climate-related risks. How do we decide what's material and how do we report on it? And what's the horizon? You know, it, is this going to be part of financial reporting? I think the answer for sure is yes. But how do we report it? And, you know, what kinds of scenarios do we look at? And how do we make the information that we report decision useful? What is the application to the derivatives market? And how should this market play? What role should it play in development of sustainable finance? And what challenges may need to be overcome to develop an effective ESG derivatives market? Well, you know, I'm not too concerned about derivatives markets. They, they play important roles in price discovery and liquidity and risk management. And we need them. And we certainly need them with respect to, uh, you know, climate-related risk factors. Corporations, investors, asset owners all need to be able to hedge these risks, to manage these risks, and, and to understand them. And those are all roles that derivatives play. Now, are there some challenges in developing the derivatives markets? I mean, yes, sure. Again, a lot of it comes back to data and standardization, what the Europeans call a taxonomy, which is really just, uh, you know, an understanding what different words mean when we talk about a green bond. What does that mean? Uh, Does everyone have the same understanding? Is it standardized? I mean, today I would say the answer is no. So those are some of the challenges, but I, I have no doubt that we'll be able to develop the derivatives products that we need. So if you have a green bond, do you need to develop a green hedge or is that just a risk management tool and you should just stick with the, the underlying bond or loan or something like that? Well, I would say, look, there, there probably is a demand for that hedging instrument, but you know, if not, fine. But if there is a demand, I'm sure the markets will figure it out. There's plenty of talented folks in the derivatives markets and more generally in the financial markets that know how to create derivatives. And I think the history here has been, you know, we try a lot of things. Some of them play an important role and and become liquid and others don't, and they go by the wayside. And I think that'll be how it'll be with respect to ESG and the use of derivatives. And, you know, I, I have no doubt there will be important, useful derivatives that will evolve over the next several decades. Now, to borrow the words from the bumper sticker, there is no planet B. Given the importance and the urgency of this work, how would you advise the Biden administration to go about establishing a comprehensive climate strategy? What should be the priorities to create a long-term strategy that provides focus and incentives to mobilize trillions of dollars of capital needed to transform the economy? Well, you're you're right. The first moves, I think, have to be associated with fiscal policy and stimulus. In addressing the uh, COVID crisis, there's still room for fiscal policy. And a lot of folks are saying, well, as part of that stimulus, you want to be creating infrastructure and capital and incentives that move the economy toward the net zero direction that we're going to go. Right now, to put this in context, we have 
incentives that go the wrong way. There's no incentives to reduce emissions, and that's a problem, and we've got to fix that. But in the meantime, we know where we're going. We're going toward having those incentives. We're going toward a net zero economy. And so the government in its spending policies ought to be moving toward that right away. Now, in order to get that incentive in place, we need bipartisan legislation. We've had a number of uh, discussions with the the Climate Leadership Council has with Republicans in the Senate and in the House who understand the importance of bipartisan legislation. So we're working with them and working with the Democrats as well toward understanding how we can get there. I think there's going to be a discussion in Congress, a bipartisan discussion. I think the Biden administration is going to lean all in on creating these appropriate incentives. And I I think we can get it over the line. I'm actually quite optimistic. It's also a global problem. And so we've got to think about the negotiations that we have with other countries to encourage them to price carbon as well. We've, We've got to work together. That's really the hard part, I would say, of a policy. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think that countries around the world are understanding this. They're all, you know, increasing their ambition. There's a lot of countries now who are talking about the targets that they need to hit in the short run in order to hit a net zero by 2050 target in the longer run. You even have China, which, you know, I, I think has felt in the past that, you know, they're a developing country and and they need to have the capacity to develop their country. Even they have said, you know, uh, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2060. And they just last week increased their ambition as well. So I see a lot of countries around the world increasing their ambition. And and that's a, a big part of the story as well. Now, one of the last questions I always like to ask my guests is, what brought you into the derivatives industry? I want to ask you a, a different sort of question on this. And would you recommend this as a career, the derivatives industry or the financial services to a young person today? And, and why, why do you make your recommendation? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I would call it financial engineering. Is financial engineering an interesting career? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's more than just a career. It's a set of tools that I think can broaden one's horizons. And, you know, you can go in many different directions, whether it's, you know, private equity or public equity or building uh, your own business. I mean, these are just a set of understanding of how the financial system works and how you can deploy capital and how you can manage risk and and so on that are yeah ter- terrific skills to have absolutely well that's the time we have for today thank you very much for joining us on the swap today there are many more issues that we'll have to cover in a future episode with you bob but uh, i really enjoyed having you on the show oh my pleasure thanks it's been great to be here Scott, there was uh, a lot to think about there. Bob really got across a sense of urgency that action needs to be taken now. He definitely stressed the importance of, of creating incentives for changing behavior and doing that quickly. Now, there was also a, a brief discussion in there about the role of derivatives and in particular, the need for standardization. Can it to play a role here, do you think? Yeah, I think we do have a role, and he alluded to it. He's, you know, the financing of of these projects is is critically important to get good risk management, and and we'll work through the, through that. I think there's a couple areas where we can help out: standardization of documentation 
and market practices, definitions to make sure they line up with cash products. I think that's very important. I think looking forward, we'll have a role in this prudential facet, and that's the risk management, how uh, understanding how capital rules and risk, climate risk rules kind of fit together and manage risk in an appropriate way on bank balance sheets. I think there's a couple of roles for ISTA to play there. And another thing that uh, that popped out, it, there seems to be a little bit of a divergence in the likely approach of uh, of the US and of Europe. How do you think that will play out? That's a great point. Those are two major economies. Europe has a head start on this. They are going down a very specific road. And I think the industry is looking for some you know, taxonomies, consistency, some standards to focus on to make sure that we understand what is green versus brown. I think that is important. It's unclear yet how the U.S. will approach that, but I do think it is important that we get alignment between the two jurisdictions to make sure that we're working towards the same ends and we have roughly the same structures in place, regulatory structures in place to to make that happen. There might be more coordination at the prudential level, which would be quite useful. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for now, I think. This is clearly going to be a massive issue, so undoubtedly we'll come back to this again later in the year, and particularly once the Biden administration's priorities and policies become a little clearer. In the meantime, there's lots of other interesting topics for us to get our teeth into, so do look out for our next episode. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.